Hello and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psychology podcast hosted by clinical psychologists Dr. Layla Din Osman, Dr. Mary Simmering McDonald, and Dr. Jennifer Rend. We hope that this podcast helps parents, children, and teens learn new coping skills in dealing with their stress and anxiety and to help strengthen relationships in their lives. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Episode 7 of The Coping Toolbox. I'm Dr. Jennifer Wren, and today I'll be joined by Dr. Erica Penner. Dr. Erica is a registered psychologist in the province of BC. She completed her master's and PhD in clinical psychology at Simon Fraser University and her postdoctoral residency at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. Dr. Erica is a staff psychologist with the Medical Psychology Program at the BC Children's Hospital. She also works as a clinical associate at Simon Fraser University, and she's active in the research community as a clinical investigator with the BC Child and Family Research Institute. We're super excited to have Dr. Erica as our guest tonight um, because Dr. Mary, Dr. Layla, and myself all did our residency at CHEO together with Dr. Erica. And we just know her as this really incredible, awesome, all-around human being. And we also have some good memories with her. And also because clearly she has some wonderful training and experience to share with us. Um, so today, Dr. Erica is going to be sharing her knowledge about selective mutism. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Erica. So let's start out by just um, maybe having you tell us a little bit about what is selective mutism. Yeah, so selective mutism is basically when a child does not speak in a social situation where they'd be expected to speak. So that could be any kind of situation or any kind of place. It could be at preschool. It could be even with family members. It could be at the grocery store. And so these are kiddos who, when someone says something to them, you know, a, a person at the grocery store says, you know, hi, little boy, what's your name? The child might freeze. They might um, kind of engage in a in sort of a more oppositional behavior like growling. Um, they may hide behind their parents' leg, but they're but they don't answer. Importantly, this is a child who does speak fine in other situations. So these are not kids who are not able to speak in any situation. For parents, they might say, no, my, my child speaks fluent, fluently with me at home, but just in other situations, they clam up. Okay. So I'm kind of curious, like, um, it, it kind of sounds a little bit like a child who's shy. So is this kind of the same thing as a child who is who's shy? It looks a little bit like shyness, but it's actually quite different. So when we think of shyness, we think of a personality characteristic that doesn't really get in a child's way of being successful in life. Kids who are shy, we think of as slow to warm. So they might be quiet at first, but as they get to know someone or as they get comfortable somewhere, they're able to kind of show themselves and speak. For a child with selective mutism, this kind of warming doesn't happen. Um, so kids with SM, they really are prevented from being able to do the things they want to do, to, to from performing successfully in school or with their friends. Um, so it actually is a sort of categorically different. So for example, if a, if a child is shy, usually in school, it might take, you know, a couple of weeks, if they're really shy, it might take a little bit longer for them to warm up with the teacher, um, where it sounds like selective mutism is a little bit different, maybe in that in that type of situation. So it's it's comfortable, and yet they still aren't really kind of getting getting comfortable in that situation. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and why this can be tricky is that kids can sometimes look really comfortable. Um, so these kids don't always look really um, anxious or kind of frozen. Let's say they're at preschool, they might be playing, they might seem sort of um, physically like they're 
quite calm, quite comfortable, but actually they, they are, um, too anxious or it's too hard for them to speak. And, and how we sort of differentiate that from the slow to warm situation that you described is we kind of think of a, of a month period as being the amount of time that it sort of would be reasonable for a child to warm up in a preschool or in a school setting. So if it's the first, you know, three weeks of school and a child's not speaking, we don't sort of look at that diagnosis of selective mutism yet. It's only after that first month, if a child continues to persist in their inability to speak, that's when we start looking at a diagnosis. What would you say is there is there a cause for selective mutism or what uh, how does how does it develop what how does it come about yeah, so these kiddos um, have what we call behavioral inhibition, which just means that sort of they they have a temperamental level of um, what you might call anxiety, and and you know these kids are are born with that behavioral inhibition, and we see that even in little tiny babies, right? We know that when we do studies of, of babies that are a day old, you know, and we clap really loud right beside right beside their their little tiny heads, you know, all babies will startle, right? They'll be like, oh, what's that loud noise? Um, and most babies will kind of go, oh, looks like that was nothing. That's fine. I'm going to calm right down. Whereas a certain, you know, small percent of babies, it takes them longer. They're like, oh, wow, that really kind of jarred me. And it takes them a lot longer to sort of calm down again. Right. So we see this right from birth. And, you know, very often kids who have selective mutism, their parents will say, yeah, you know what? I was really shy as a kid, or I'm a more anxious person. So there is that kind of genetic loading. Um, but really what we see is that, you know, when kids kind of hit that preschool age, you know, around three, that's when we start to see that selective mutism come out because often before age three, kids have been in really comfortable situations. They've mostly been at home with mom and dad, places that are very unlikely um, to kind of um, be spots where kids are, find it too hard to speak. Right, right. And it's interesting what you were saying about, you know, from such a, a young, young age, because I have, and I'm sure you have the same thing, Dr. Erica, where people come in and parents often feel they're at blame for some of the issues or the challenges. So again, kind of neat to think that it's, you know, it's, it's innate, it's, it's almost born, I guess, the way you're describing it, born into them. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think what's really important for parents is that, you know, they're absolutely not to blame. It's not parents' fault at all, 100%. But that doesn't mean that parents can't be part of the solution. So even though they're not the cause of the problem, um, they absolutely can do lots to help their kiddos. So we got a sense now of how it kind of starts, how it develops. Um, what about maintaining factors? What kind of keeps this type of thing, these types of behaviors? Um, what keeps them going? Yeah, and this is kind of where parents very often inadvertently maintain, as you say, selective mutism. So absolutely, they didn't cause it to start. Um, and it's really natural and normal the way that it gets maintained. And it gets maintained through what we call negative reinforcement. And so essentially what happens is, you know, think about that same scenario. So you're in a grocery store, the clerk says, oh, hi, a little boy, what's your name? Right? Child freezes, right? They maybe they hide behind their parents' leg or they kind of have a look of, you know, deer in the headlights. The child experiences, you know, this anxiety or the distress, but the parent also is experiencing distress, right? Because they're seeing their child in the distress. So, child is distressed, parent is distressed. This loving parent, right, cares so much about their little one. They have this normal, natural, empathic response where they go, Oh, my son, you know, his, his name is, his name is Jimmy, um, you know, and he's, he's three, whatever it is, right? Phew, everybody feels better, right? So negative reinforcement is when something bad, like a bad feeling or a bad thing gets taken away. So when the parent responds for the child, the parent feels better, child feels better, everybody is negatively enforced. But unfortunately, this is kind of a learning experience where the child goes, oh, super, when I feel this anxious and, I, and I'm kind of being forced to or, or a demand is being placed on me to speak, 
if I just kind of freeze or if I wait, I know my parent is going to save me. So, and, and it sort of reinforces this, this cycle of not speaking in these socially expected situations. Right. So we've talked in some of our other episodes just about how anxiety works. And it's like the number one thing is when we feel anxious, we want to avoid. So I think that's what you're describing here, right? Where it's sort of the child mm -hmm. wants to do everything they can to avoid having to talk. And if a parent or, or somebody close to them jumps in and speaks for them, um, it, it takes away that pressure to talk, right? So it's, it's that avoidance is actually reinforced. And then you can see, like you were saying, Dr. Erica, that pattern developing, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And you can think about how many times, especially as kids get older and they're more out in the world, how many times that's practiced, right? I mean, it's practiced, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of, of times, you know, as children go through their lives. So it becomes really well-worn. Right. And we all kind of have that, I think, too. Like, I'm just thinking about some of my experiences, right? And even as, you know, a child psychologist, you don't want to put that pressure on the child and, and you can kind of sense when they feel uncomfortable. And, you know, you might ask a question and if the child's not answering, you might even look to the parent, right? And it it's kind of feeds into that whole pattern that you're describing. It's so interesting. Oh, absolutely. We're all so well-meaning, right? We're all <laughs> trying to just be nice and do the right thing. And unfortunately for this, you know, for many kids, that's okay. But for this subset of kids, it's really, unfortunately, something that's going to make the problem worse over time. Right, right. So I'm curious about this. Um, so we've got, you know, kind of this, this genetic predisposition that you described, the kids are kind of born with this. Um, and then maybe some of these patterns, some of this, you know, parents maintaining it. Um, is this something that kids are likely, um, we, you know, without without any involvement of, of a therapist or, you know, without the parent realizing what's going on, are the kids likely to outgrow uh, selective mutism? Yeah, unfortunately not. So what we know about selective mutism over time is that it really causes quite an enormous amount of suffering for kids. Um, you can imagine how hard it would be in class if you want to answer a question or you have to go to the bathroom or you're hurt um, or someone, you know, another kid is bullying you to not be able to speak up in those situations or even um, in kind of less you know, intense situations, like even just not being able to say what kind of ice cream you want, right? Mm -hmm. um, what color crayon you want to use, right? For, for these kids, they often don't have a voice. And that can um, really cause a lot of anguish for kids as they grow up. And, you know, we all think like, oh, I don't really know any adults who like 100% refuse to speak. But I mean, what ends up happening is, you know, we all choose our own paths in life. And, you know, these are the folks for whom speaking up in a meeting, you know, as they get older, it feels just impossible. These are adults who sometimes we think of as rude, right? Um, maybe we open the door for them and they walk behind us and they don't say thank you. And it doesn't occur to us that maybe for this person, those kinds of social niceties are really hard. Um, so I certainly know other psychologists who in graduate school, they, they never asked one question. Question. And, and, you know, now in looking back, I think, wow, this is someone who, for whom that was, you know, they're really smart, you know, brilliant people, but um, that, that they are so inhibited to be able to speak in those situations that so we know that it can grow into social anxiety. And we know that it, it really doesn't kind of just spontaneously remit in most cases. That's what I, I was wondering. Um, there just seems, there seems to be some of the, like, there's differences, I guess, but also the similarities with sort of the selective mutism um, shyness, social anxiety, um, and again, we've talked uh, in, in our previous episodes about, about anxiety a little bit. Um, social anxiety is definitely an important one we'd like to cover at some point, but can you maybe just um, elaborate a little bit on the differences between selective mutism and, and social anxiety? And, and I think you mentioned that, you know, selective mutism can maybe evolve 
into social anxiety, but can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, and it's a, it's a tricky thing in the research literature and you'll find different um, kind of studies saying that, oh, sometimes they'll say selective mutism is really highly correlated with, with social anxiety, meaning that for a child who has selective mutism, they're very likely to have social anxiety, but other studies find they're less highly correlated. And the reality is when children are really little, like let's say you've got a three-year-old, they um, don't have the language or even sometimes the cognitive skills to um, display or be able to communicate the symptoms of social anxiety, right? like fear of negative appraisal by, by others, right? It'd be really hard for a three-year-old right. to say, you know what, I'm just worried about speaking because I think, you know, I think Sally in my class um, might have some thoughts about me that I don't agree with and she might think ill of me, right? Like kids at that age, it's just really hard for them to have those kinds of ideas. So, um, you know, what we see is kind of as kids get older, that overlap between social anxiety mm. and substance mutism gets higher. But really in little kids, you know, what we think about is just that, um, speaking is hard. We don't necessarily say, oh, they're, they're necessarily socially anxious. And often, as I say, kids don't even necessarily look socially anxious, right? They don't look inhibited in their behavior in a, in a preschool room. So, you know, we, we, we kind of don't worry about it too much in little kids. And we just say, you know, we know how they have such mutism. We know that speaking's hard. We're not going to try to figure out, is this also social anxiety? Because that really doesn't buy you a lot in terms of mm -hmm. um, sort of treatment path anyways. Um, and as I say, it's just uh, they're not going to report those kinds of um, symptoms uh, at that developmental stage. Right. And, and just sorry, one other question just to help me understand it a little bit better and, and help our audience a little bit better. But um, is there usually any sort of like language impairment or, you know, or kids maybe that have uh, an accent or, you know, if, if they maybe do stand out a little bit more, do you know, um, I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but are they more likely to develop or, or to have um, selective mutism in these situations? So I, I think what's important about selective mutism is that it really isn't a language disorder. So when we think about this diagnosis, it has nothing to do with language fluency in and of itself. These are children who are fluent. So the issue isn't, can they speak? It's where do they speak, right? And so this is a child who would speak absolutely fluently um, at home with their parent. And, and this isn't even necessarily in English, right? I mean, this could be in any any language. Um, and then when they get out into the world, they struggle too. Right. And I, I guess I'm just thinking too, for kind of our audience and, and for parents, um, I think the big thing, and from what I've heard with selective mutism, is that um, it, the parents are usually shocked um, because they might get a call from a teacher and the teacher might say, hey, like, you know, your child isn't speaking at all. And the teachers actually can sometimes be concerned about a possible language issue. Um, but the parents know at home, no, like the child is is fluent. They're talking all the time. And I've even heard um, people say, you know, like I might be on the phone with the teacher and they can hear my kid in the background and they're shocked because they've never heard this child speak. And yet at home, when they're comfortable, the language comes fine. So, yeah, I guess that's... Uh, I think, is that, is that what your experience has been? Exactly right. And I think that's why often, you know, we don't see this being diagnosed until around age three, which is when children start preschool, right? Or when children, you know, for other kids, we see it diagnosed from around age five, if they didn't go to preschool and their first kind of exposure to um, more of these novel social settings is when they enter kindergarten. So, so definitely um, people are often will say that they've never even heard the child. They didn't even know what their voice sounded like um, until something like that, what you're describing with the phone call. So fascinating, so interesting. So um, so what about um, helping these kids? So when we kind of think about, um, you know, and you've talked about how, sort of how it develops, how it's maintained, when we're moving forward into how, how does somebody actually break some of these habits? How do we, how do we treat this? What does that look like? 
Yeah. So I think the most important thing um, for parents is to, you know, if you're worried, definitely get in to see um, a child psychologist as soon as possible. We know that um, it's easier to treat when kids are little, um, you know, as opposed to when they're kind of hitting that middle childhood um, or, you know, certainly the teen years, it becomes much harder to treat. And what's really important is to see someone who has specific training in the treatment of such mutism. You know, when we think of therapies for kids, you know, often the teen therapies and the adult therapies sort of are quite similar. They can be, right? They're often talk therapies, whereas treatment for something like this in little kids looks 100% different than what we think about, right? Which is like having someone in a room and, and talking with them. That is not at all what treatment looks like. So that's why it's really critical to find someone who has specific expertise in this area. That's kind of the it first step. It sounds like it would put a lot of pressure on the kid too, right? This poor child who doesn't like to talk and then heading into talk therapy does sound like a bit of a nightmare. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And, you know, when a kid first comes to see me, if I know I have a child with selective mutism coming in, you know, they walk through the door and you have to know that I am not asking them one single question for at least a half an hour. Mm. Um, so, you know, for me, the, the first set of skills that I'm using with a child are called child-directed interactions, right? So the child comes in and I say... Oh, Jimmy's here. That's great. Oh, Jimmy, I love your red boots. You're going to come here through with me and we're going to do some coloring together. No question, right? I have, don't have one question in there. And then we're going to start to play together. We're going to do some coloring. And I'm going to use a set of skills that place absolutely no demand on them to speak. So I'm going to use a lot of labeled praise like, oh, I love how you are using the red crayon to draw circles. That's fantastic. Um, I'm going to do play-by-play -play announcer kind of behavioral descriptions. Like I'll say, oh, I see you choosing a new color. Um, I wonder what Jimmy's going to do with that. Oh, I see that he's um, making circles on top of the red circles. Wow, I love what Jimmy's drawing, right? And like, it sounds ridiculous, but I'm just going to go on like that. And, um, you know, parents kind of might think, oh, that's a really weird thing to do. But what I'm showing this child is that I am not going to place any demands to speak on them, that they are absolutely okay here. And not just that, but I'm really interested in what they're doing because, you know, if you ever looked at a classroom, you know, who is the teacher paying attention to? They're paying attention to the loud kids, the assertive mm -hmm. kids, the behavioral kids, um, <laughs> but those lovely SM kids who just sit quietly in the back and mind their own business, I mean, they are easy to miss. And so these are kids that don't get a lot of attention, that don't get as much praise, um, that don't get as much reinforcement in their life. So I'm going to show this child that I think what they're doing is awesome. And not only that, but this is a safe place for them where they're not going to get the constant barrage of questions that they do in every other environment. Right. Right. Okay. So kind of starting out with that and, and you're kind of starting from, you know, coming into your office and, and how you approach the child. And it sounds like kind of basically just describing what the child's doing. So there's lots of, you know, um, verbalizations, lots of praise. Um, what happens next? Where do you go from there? Yeah. So I do that, as I say, for about a half an hour, and then I'm going to test out a question on them. And I'm going to be really thoughtful about the question that I ask, knowing that there's different kinds of questions out there and there's easier ones and there's harder ones, right? So an open-ended uh, question, right? Like, what do you think about U.S. politics, right? That's a really tough <laughs> question, um, not an age-appropriate one easier either. Um, and then there's easier questions, right? So there's what we call forced choice questions. So if I said to a child, do you want the red or the orange crayon? That's a really nice, easy question because I'm giving them the words. They know that their choices are red and orange. I've given them the words that they need to respond with and they all they have to do is choose one of the two words that I've given them, right? And so I, I would say to the child, I'd, I'd wait and I'd wait and then I'd say, do you want the red or the orange crayon? 
And I wait five seconds. And this is like the longest five seconds of your life because in your head, you're like, please, please answer, please answer, please answer. Um, but if you've ever heard a parent or any other person speak to a child, right? It's, it's, like, um, it's like rapid fire, right? It's like, what did you do today, Jimmy? Did you have your lunch? Oh, I see you didn't eat your lunch. What happened? Oh, was, was, was Katie nice to you today? Did you do anything at lunchtime? Right? It's just, we like, <laughs> we like hit kids yeah. <laughs> with these questions. And so you ask a question, then you wait five seconds, like five long seconds. <laughs> And if they do answer, oh my goodness, I'm going to reflect and praise that, right? I'm going to be orange. You told me orange. Oh, I love how you told me orange. That's great. Here's the orange crayon, right? Like over the top. And again, these are kids that don't often get to express their preferences. So I, I want to really show them that I love hearing what they want, right? And if they don't like that, usually doesn't happen. Usually they don't answer me the first time. Let's say they, 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 they freeze. Yeah. Like, no, it doesn't always go great. Um, let's say they freeze or whatever. They just don't answer. Then I'm going to kind of back up metaphorically. So I might allow kind of a more accommodating response. I might, if their parents are with them, I might allow them to whisper to their parent. I might, um, I might take a step back. I might go stand in the doorway and say, oh, can you whisper to your parent now, red or orange? Um, worst case scenario, I get them to point, right? So I'm going to back up, back up, but I am not going to allow that negative reinforcement pattern to happen. I am going to wait until I get a response from them one way or the other. If I have to pretend that I have to go to the bathroom and leave the room and then they whisper to their parent and I come back and the parent tells me, I will take that. That's my least favorite choice. But if that's where I have to go, that's where I'll go, right? Right. And then the next time I ask a question for that kid, I'm going to be out in the hallway. And then the next time I'm going to be in the doorway and I'm going to sneak my way back into the room until they can <laughs> ask a question, right? With me yeah. uh, in the room. I have to make a lot of bathroom breaks uh, when I do this kind of treatment, whether I like it or not. <laughs> they all think you're that therapist that has an issue with going to the bathroom. <laughs> totally. Totally. That incontinent therapist that I've got. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is, this is great, right? So this is in your office. This is a controlled environment. Um, you're used to working with kids, you're comfortable with kids, you know how to make kids comfortable. Um, so you told me a little bit about what it might look like in your office. Um, what, just in terms of talking about treatment, um, what makes sense to you? Like, is the next step, should we talk more about what happens in the office? Do we talk about how that goes out into the real world? Um, from your, you're the expert here. So what, what would yeah. be the next steps? So those skills that I've described, those like child-directed interactions and then what we call verbally-directed interactions, those are kind of like the warming up skills and then the talking skills, I'm going to transfer those to the important people in the child's life. I want the parent to be able to do just what I did. I want the teacher to be able to do just what I did. And anybody, any other main caregiver, if there's a nanny, if there's a grandparent, I want those people to be able to do what I did. But let's face it, I can't teach everybody, right? I can't go to the grocery store and teach the grocery store clerk. So, so I try to create as many mini therapists like me as I can. And then for those, all those other people that exist in the world, right? We do a different kind of practice. So let's say we're going to do the grocery store clerk and, or even better, like an ice cream shop, right? Something that's got some reward built into it. So we're going to go to the ice cream shop and the child's going to order their ice cream. So I'm going to go to the shop. I'm going to go with the child, but before we go, we're going to practice, right? I'm going to say to the child, okay, the, the person's going to ask you, do you want vanilla or chocolate ice cream? And what are you going to say? Chocolate. Okay, let's practice again. Do you want vanilla or chocolate ice cream? Chocolate. We practice, we practice. We're walking to the store. We're practicing, we're practicing. You know, every few steps, we're practicing. Okay, let's practice again. Do you want chocolate or vanilla ice cream? Chocolate. Great. We get to the ice cream store. Before the person has a chance to speak, I put my hand up. I say, hold on. 
and I have a, you know, I've got my whiteboard with me and I say, I want you to ask this child the question in just the way that it's written, right? So I'm controlling the environment. I'm not going to let this person blow it for, for me by being like, hey, what's your name? Oh, what's on your shoes? Like, I'm not going to let them screw it up. I say, hold on. I want you to read this whiteboard and then I want you to stop talking, right? So the person <laughs> the ice cream store says, right? Because people are nice. Generally, they go, all right, weirdo, right? Whatever. Um, Hi, Jimmy. Do you want chocolate or vanilla ice cream? Now, fingers crossed, Jimmy goes, chocolate. But if he doesn't, no problem. Let's take a few steps back. We'll go back to the doorway of the ice cream store. Let's practice again. Practice, practice, practice. And then we get to the front and he can whisper chocolate. And I just reflect and praise. Chocolate, you said chocolate. Fantastic. We're getting a chocolate ice cream. So those are kind of the two things. You, you kind of create your mini therapist. You can do that work. And for everybody else, the, the grocery store clerks, the ice cream salespeople of the world, um, we just get in their face and we control things so that the child gets to practice this, um, this skill of talking um, with different people in different places. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to imagine people listening to this right now, right? Being like, but wait, like, I can't imagine walking around with my child forever with this whiteboard <laughs> saying like, okay, Jimmy's, you know, 25 years old and you need to ask him the question this way. Um, so help us understand, like, how do you go from sort of that point? Like, how does this work? How does, how does this like long-term, what are we looking at? What is this, what does yeah. this look like? Yeah, it's practice, 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 right? So when, when kids are in treatment for selective mutism, I'm getting to them to practice these skills every single day. Parents are working with their kids every single day, practicing these talking skills. Um, and it's, you know, it's sort of like the, you know, the opposite of, of a response generalization when, when there's fear, right? So, um, you know, we're really primed, right? If, if we get bitten by one dog, now we're scared of all dogs. So that's really, you know, that's evolutionarily, that makes sense. Like, okay, I've learned there's a threat. I need to um, be really mindful of anything that reminds me of that threat. And so we're kind of working against that evolutionary principle with SM. So um, we need to have lots of times practicing um, speaking and have, have, having there be a positive outcome for the child to start to generalize that. But that is what you see happening, right? You practice in different settings, you practice with different people, and eventually the child gets better and better. They get more and more confident um, and their skills really improve. And that's, and that's what we see. But certainly, you know, these are kids for whom, um, you know, it is going to be important for them to stay connected to the social world, right? It is going to be important for them um, to, to be in a social setting, right? Like this is not a child who I'd want to then decide that it's, you know, maybe a good idea to homeschool them when they're in grade three, right? We want these kids to always um, be reinforcing um, their, their kind of confident speaking skills. But absolutely, those skills do generalize. They do become much less fearful, or as we would say, just it becomes less hard for them to speak as they practice speaking more and more. Right. So kind of, um, you know, and, and I'm sure you've had this too in practice where parents are like, but I, you know, I don't want to be over controlling of their environment, but it really sounds like, you know, that the first step is you, you have to be in order to get the child at a level where they're comfortable enough to talk. Right. And so you start with sort of the people that are closest. So probably family members, you know, and then maybe the next might be a teacher um, based on what you're saying. And then you kind mm -hmm. of extend it out further and further and further, but as you're doing that, the child's going to be gaining confidence and feeling more comfortable and able to take on more and more risks in terms of, uh, you know, the risk being that they, they speak, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, you got it. Awesome. Well, you know what, like this is, I've already learned a ton um, <laughs> just from what you've been talking about. Um, and even just the way we kind of approach, you know, people and, and I think you made a, a, an interesting comment, even, you know, somebody, you know, you hold the door for them and they don't thank you or things like that. And it's always 
you know, I, I try to do that as best I can, but like, who knows what's going on with that person. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, just in terms of kind of wrapping up today and thinking about, you know, what would be a couple of takeaways for people coming out of, uh, what you've described about selective mutism, um, and kind of moving forward, what do you think might be a few points just to kind of keep in mind, uh, based on what we've talked about today? Yeah, I think one of the main ones is know that your child is not being oppositional when they don't speak. We know that's absolutely not the case. Know that your child is um, actually suffering when they can't talk, that it's really hard for them. And that um, things that we may lovingly do as a parent to try to encourage them to speak, like um, offering a reward or um, kind of coaxing them, you know, saying, oh, I, you know, I heard you speak so beautifully this morning with grandma. Oh, I, I, I bet you teacher would love to hear that too. Or, oh, you see how your sister is speaking so well, like you could do that to any of those things, right? Like mm. that really doesn't, that's unlikely to help. Like certainly we do use rewards when we treat such abuse all the time. But um, I always think of it as sort of like if someone offered me like $10 million to complete a calculus question, like that would actually be a really mean thing to do because I can't do it. <laughs> right? Like I want that $10 million, but I can't do it. And so like, you know, um, and the more money you offer me, it's not going to make it more likely that I can do the calculus question. Right. So um, I feel right? like it's a really good, really good comparison and, and probably so frustrating. Like I'm always trying to put myself in, in parents' shoes as well, like the kid and also the parent. Right. So it's mm -hmm. like so difficult for the kid because it really doesn't, like you say, it's like the calculus question. Like I really cannot do this. Um, but from the parents' perspective, they're probably feeling so frustrated and desperate, right? And that's often oh, what we for see in sure. our offices. Yeah, so just to kind of help them to take that step back and to understand it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it is so hard for parents and, um, and absolutely all the things that, that we inadvertently do that maintains this behavior, it's done from an absolute place of love. So, mm -hmm. um, that's why you're absolutely right. I think we all deserve some sympathy, kids and parents alike. <laughs> right. Especially these days. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, okay. I interrupted you. You were, you were talking about, um, kind of a couple of takeaways. So okay. that um, first one yeah. is great. And, uh, yeah, what else, what do you, what else do you think is important? Well, I was trying to think about for what a parent might do. I mean, obviously seeking treatment right away is super important, but I know there's wait lists and these things take time. And so I was trying to think, what can a parent do in the meantime while they're waiting to receive services? And the best thing I can think to do is kind of aim for an in-between, right? So, um, you know, if, if you know, you're at the grocery store and, and someone says, you know, hey, Jimmy, or hey, little kid, do you want, um, do you want a, a lollipop or a gummy or whatever they say, right? and your child freezes, um, maybe you can help them do an in-between. Maybe you can't help them to speak in that situation because that's probably too hard, but maybe you can suggest that they whisper in your ear and then you can share the information. Or maybe you can take a step back, like literally a physical step back and see if they can answer in that. You know, So I think I think there are, for, for parents, um, trying to find a way, at least for your child to be able to say what they want. That's so empowering for kids. And it's so hard for kids. I mean, they have so little autonomy as it is and to not even be able to make choices about simple things like what kind of treat they want or where they want to go that day. So if they're, you know, for parents while you're waiting and absolutely seek treatment as quickly as you can, because that's just to make everybody's lives easier um, to, to try to help your child to communicate, um, even if that's not, ex doesn't look exactly the way you'd like it to look, right? You, of course, you want them to be able to just respond on their own, but what can you do to help them at least communicate their needs, um, you know, in the meantime? Great, great. Those sound like really great tips. 
Um, what about, um, do you have any suggestions for, for resources um, where families can go if they're kind of maybe looking for some, some ideas, some suggestions, kind of wondering about selective mutism? Um, and like you say, sometimes with wait lists too, they're, they're kind of just looking for information while they wait. Oh, absolutely. So um, there's um, selectedmutism.org and that um, organization, um, they have a yearly selective mutism conference. So um, the folks that are involved in that organization are really um, up to date on the literature, probably more than I am. Um, and they also maintain a list of treatment providers who have specific expertise in selective mutism and they do include Canada in that. Um, and then there's also the anxietycanada.com um, selective mutism page, which has really great information um, that was put together by psychologists um, largely in BC. Anything else that you uh, wanted to mention today? Anything else, Dr. Erica, um, from your point of view that you wanted to say today? You know, the only other thing I wanted to say is that I think parents often feel afraid to acknowledge to their children that there's a problem when it comes to speaking. And um, one of the things that we always do in treatment for mutism is we put the problem out there in the open. So we acknowledge, we say to kids that um, talking is hard for them. When kids come to see me, the parents always say, well, what should I tell them? And I say, you're coming to see a doctor who's going to help them with talking because talking is really hard for you. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I always encourage parents that, you know, you're not fooling anybody. Like your kid knows that they're having trouble speaking. So, um, you don't need to kind of tiptoe around it. That doesn't mean having a, you know, a, a sit down conversation with your, with your three-year-old, but um, just don't, not to be afraid to acknowledge like, oh, that was really hard today. I know it was really hard at the store when that person asked you that question, right? Like, that's okay. You're not going to, you're sure not going to make it worse. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. Yeah. I just, I mean, kids are so often aware, right? So it's just like, oh, for sure. The elephant <laughs> yeah. in the room, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, and pretending doesn't really make it go. I mean, I wish we could, if we could pretend things away, my goodness, <laughs> Dr. Jen, you and I would be out of jobs, but um, sadly, that is not the case. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, like I said, just uh, a real wealth of information, and I really appreciate it, Dr. Erica. So thank you so much um, for joining us today. Um, and as always, thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure being here.